morning. Good to see you all. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. And we pick up where we left off last week um, in the narrative and in the lessons to be learned um, for each one of us as the body of Christ uh, and as individual members, as men, as women. And we see redemption taking place. We see it in the works. We see God working His sovereign hand in the life of some people, uh, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, and we see God working uh, His sovereign plan out. And all of this is going to come out uh, the, the next uh, sermon that I preach. We'll, we'll talk about the, the product of this relationship, Obed. And uh, we'll see that, uh, uh, that God had a plan the whole time. And we've talked about that, just the, the providence of God and not only that God has a plan, but God works His plan uh, through the choices and actions of individuals. As we make choices, as we uh, go and live and do the right thing, God works His plan and His desire through all those things. Um, last week, what, one thing that we noticed is we noticed Ruth's proposal. Uh, she essentially proposed to Boaz. That's what was going on there on the threshing floor. This week, we're going to look at the proposal of Boaz because that's what we're about to see. You know, proposals have become quite a big deal nowadays. Everybody's looking for a way to propose marriage to a woman, you know. How do we do this? And I tell you, it's, it seems to be more about social media than it does about beginning some type of godly relationship. It seems to be more, I'm going to calm down, it seems to be more fluff. It seems to be some artistic display, some type of look at me thing. Start your marriage off with that kind of selfishness and you're doomed. I, I want us to see I mean, they got a proposal for everything. Regina and I were talking on the way in this morning. And she said, you know they have proposals for prom now? And, and when something hits me like that, I kind of went, what? What for? Don't you just go ask her? Hey, you want to go to prom? I mean, what if you're Facebook live in that thing? And she goes, nah. Now what? Proposals here that we're seeing in Ruth are a bit different than the silly shenanigans of the 21st century. And I want us to consider that. I want us to think about that. And uh, I, I want us to unpack these verses. Last week, we looked, like I said, at the proposal of Ruth to Boaz. And Naomi put her up to that, said, look, this is what you need to do. She's a Moabitess. She doesn't know. So Naomi said, look, I grew up here. I know how this works. All right? This is what I want you to do. And so Boaz's response to that was, you stay there till morning and then we'll take care of this. In other words, he demonstrated great integrity. He did not take advantage of a woman who came and presented herself to him. He was a 
better man than that. And so, uh, come morning, early in the morning, it's still dark. Look, you need to get out of here before the sun comes up. But don't leave. Put, put out your little bag there, you know, that you're wearing, your, your cloak. And he filled it up with grain. We find out later on that when he did that, it was six measures of barley in verse 17 of chapter 3. And he said to Ruth, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Why? She'll know what this means. You see, the six uh, measures of barley, that was a pledge. Hey, you know, Naomi, you're the only one I can give this to. Here's my pledge. I'm going to marry your daughter-in-law. That's why at the end of chapter 3, Naomi replies, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, Boaz, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. He's going to take care of it today. Everything we're about to go over happens on the same day where Naomi went to the threshing floor and lay down at the feet of Boaz. It's that day where they woke up and he said, here, take this. It's my pledge for your mother-in-law. Want her to know that I intend on following through on your proposal. I'm going to go make a proposal. There's no doubt as we read this, I mean, isn't this a beautiful story? I mean, as we've been going through it, I, I know you've probably read Ruth before, you know, and just seen the beautiful story and the love story that's developing between Ruth and Boaz. We're about six to eight weeks in to this relationship right now. That's what we're looking at. And there's already proposals being made of marriage. Six to eight weeks in, and we see in this that they have developed a relationship, one of protection and care from Boaz and one of loyalty and faithfulness from Ruth. And you can see that it has developed over time love and concern and compassion, all these things that have developed between them. They have desire. that is unmet at this point. But none of these things are sufficient in decision-making. It's not sufficient for you to feel a certain way and make your decision based on that. Well, he makes me feel like this or she makes me feel like that. Do not base your decision on that. Because your feelings can change. Our feelings are powerful. They're often wrong in helping us know what's the right thing to do. Boaz could have utilized some back door to marrying Ruth. She was under no obligation because her husband had died and she was a foreigner. But for him to do that would have been no benefit to Naomi. And Naomi was incredibly important to Ruth. And it's very important that we get that, men. That what's important to our wives is important to us. So Boaz, what did he do? The right thing. Hey, Ruth, I feel this love for you, but there's somebody else who can redeem you. And if he can redeem you, and if he wants to redeem you, we'll, we'll go that route. <laughs> How loved do you feel, ladies, on that concept, you know? 
there's another guy, you know. Like I said, all right, this story does not play out like the shenanigans of the 21st century, all right? Boaz wanted to do the right thing. That's what he wanted. First and foremost, I want to do what is right for you, for Naomi, and for the name of Elimelech. I want to do what's right. I don't think Ruth was going, well, Boaz, don't you love me? Don't you want to spend the rest of your life? That's not what's going on. She's going, that's a man right there. That's a man who wants to do what is right. That's a man of integrity and honesty. That's a man. And so he, I mean, Naomi assures Ruth of something. He's going to go take care of this. A day will not pass that you won't know the answer concerning your redemption. Our redemption. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz goes to the gate. I mean, he's at the threshing floor. He says, hey, Ruth, spread out your garment. I'm filling it up with six measures. Go show that to Naomi. I'm going to the gate. I'm pretty sure he sprinted down there. It's still early in the morning. He got back to town. He's at the threshing floor in the fields. Why is he going back to the gate? Well, it says Boaz had gone up to the gate and had sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, let me give you three thoughts out of this narrative. First of all, I want us to look at the negotiation that takes place at the gate. Secondly, I want us to see the legal transaction that transpires. And thirdly, I want you to see the community blessing. Of what comes out of this. So Boaz went to the gate. Well, the gate was a place, and most many of us know that the gate is where judgments took place. Okay? If someone had a legal matter, if somebody had a dispute that needed to be settled there in Bethlehem, well, one thing that would happen is that they would go to the gate. And there at the gate was where the city elders gathered. And those, ga- those gathered elders would hear uh, the, the, the complaint and they would make a judgment. Well, also, they served as witnesses. Uh, and those witnesses would be witnesses to transactions and so forth. That's what's taking place here. It's a transaction between Naomi and the Redeemer. Naomi has the right of the land. It passed to her because there were no sons. And she was, the, she was the wife. But Naomi uh, can't be the person who passes the land except to a redeemer. She can't do anything with it. And so Boaz runs to the gate. Because that's also where people passed in and out of the city. And the redeemer he thought perhaps would be passing through. And by the way, he did. On his way from the city, on the way from his house, out into the fields, maybe to continue some harvest, maybe heading to a threshing floor himself. But that's what we see in the first couple of verses. The Redeemer never have his name. Absolutely never have his name. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so he was at the gate. Early in the morning, he wanted to take care of this. And he went and he said to him, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. I I want you to know something that tells us a couple of things. Number one, we need to understand, is that this person, this redeemer, knew Boaz, as did many people in the area, and they had some respect for him. 
This guy's on his way somewhere. He has some business to take care of. He has business in the field to take care of. And he takes time out of respect for Boaz, we assume, to sit down and see what he has to say. That's one. The second thing we need to notice is where it says, turn aside, friend. The Hebrew doesn't say friend. Uh, It's a marker of a person, but it's not necessarily friend. Evidently, the narrator decides to use this word to describe the Redeemer. We never know his name, absolutely never know his name. And his desire, the Redeemer's desire, may have been to remain anonymous. Also, however, we need to see that the narrator is setting up a contrast between the selfless decision of Boaz and the selfish decision of the first Redeemer. We're going to see the selfishness of him in a few moments in the negotiation. But Boaz is absolutely doing something selfless. He's taking on the responsibility of another man's name to ensure that his name does not go away in the line of succession, in the line uh, of, of families and tribes and clans and all these things. So what Boaz is doing is, being, is considered incredibly honorable, okay? So we see that, turn aside, and the word is translated this, so-and-so. You know, I grew up with my mama saying that, oh, so-and-so. That meant a couple of things. Number one, she didn't remember his name or her name. Number two, she didn't like them enough to say their name, you know? There's nothing positive about this particular word that's being used to describe the Redeemer. Oh, so-and-so came by. Hey, so-and-so, come here and sit down. Boaz knew his name. The narrator didn't know his name. And he was evidently a so-and-so, all right? And that he was selfish. That selfishness is proved out here in a moment. So Boaz uh, wastes no time. He runs from the threshing floor down to the gate, catches the Redeemer, and says, come over here. But then look what it says. It says, uh, and he turned aside and sat down, the, the, the Redeemer did, and he took, he being Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. I mean, these are the respected men. These are the elder men. These are the men who help make judgments and help make people decisions. And he he went intentionally and found them and said, come over here and sit down. I've I've got something I need to do here, and I need you to be a witness of it. And so Boaz has the scene set. There they are. They're all sitting down there. They're all... Uh, prepared uh, for what's coming on up, and Boaz presents his case. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back, and evidently Naomi was known, okay? The conversation in the fields was about Naomi and Ruth, who had come back with her, her daughter-in-law. Y'all remember uh, back in chapter 2? Uh, that was a conversation that took place. Evidently, people knew who Naomi was. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So this is the proposition. Here's the proposition Boaz puts out there. He said, look, you know Naomi. You know Elimelech has died. You know she no longer has sons uh, to inherit. 
she has this Moabitess. But he doesn't present that. He does not present that yet. That didn't come up. He just presents the land. He just says Naomi is going to sell this land. She's going to pass title to a redeemer. And so he puts that out there. There's these witnesses, not only the people at the gate, but also or the elders at the gate, but also people standing around there at the gate, maybe waiting for some elders to listen to their thing. And so he presents this. If you'll redeem it, fine. If not, okay. That's benefit to having this land. There's no heir yet, all right? So whoever has the land has the right to use the land. The benefit is, is that you can plant more crops, and therefore you can make more money. And therefore you can be more generous with the gleanings around and the edges for the sojourners and the poor. You make a name for yourself by having more and more land. Naomi had this and was going to pass it on. But we need to know something about the land in Israel. God owned the land. Okay? Yep. Okay? Have that. Pack that away. Not like what we do. We don't go buy some land and pay it off and, you know, pay taxes on it the rest of our life. All right? Uh, this is, instead, they, God owned the land. And God came up with a way of managing that land. Hey, Tribe, this tribe is going to, this is going to be the boundaries of this tribe. This is going to be the boundaries of this tribe. What's he doing? He's saying, you're responsible for this land. And within each tribe, there were clans of families. And those clans had a parcel within the tribe that they were to care for and that they were to farm and that they were to develop and so forth. And within those clans and the parcel that each clan had, there were families who had responsibility for sections of that property. And they were to farm that, and they were going to develop that, and they were to keep up with that. And they kept up with that through the lineage, through uh, the men that were born and so forth. And Elimelech was dead, and Kilion was dead, and Malon was dead. And they needed a redeemer to take hold of this property. So this is less about money changing hands and more about the right to use the land. Because at some point, all the land is going to go back in the year of Jubilee. is going to go back to the clans that originally had it. And the families that originally had it. That's how God restored things. And so this process is very important in making sure that the right people get the land. And so Boaz is redeeming that. Um, so he's presented this. He hadn't said, oh, by the way, Ruth. He hadn't said that yet. And so he presents this, and the Redeemer, first Redeemer, says, I will redeem it. Of course, beneficial. You can plant more crops, make more money, uh, have more people uh, fed, so forth. His family grows as a result. They grow in their inheritance. They grow in all these things. Verse 5, then Boaz said, he had an ace up his sleeve here, didn't he? I want you to know, Boaz went having thought this out. All right? He went and thought this out. I got to write something. Hang on. Because I didn't write it earlier. It's what I do. I'm still writing my sermon right here. So Boaz pulls it out. Here's my ace. The day you buy the land from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
You see, the first Redeemer didn't realize this. Remember last week I talked about the Redeemer and then I talked about the Leveret marriage where if a man dies, his brother has a responsibility to ensure that his name goes forward. That's what's going on. These two are connected to one another. The Leveret marriage and the Redeemer. And so the day you buy the field, Ruth the Moabite comes and you have to perpetuate the name of the dead. Elimelech and particularly Malon, her husband who had died. You have to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer went, wait a minute. Uh, I can't redeem it for myself. And let me tell you why. And he says it. He says, lest I impair my own inheritance. Remember what I said? The narrator was setting up a contrast between the Redeemer who is not named and Boaz and the selfishness of one and the selflessness of another. That's a selfish reason. It would upset his inheritance and the inheritance of his own kids. He's kind of like, I can't do it. I can't bring in another wife into my home. So the Redeemer says, I cannot inherit it. I can't redeem it for myself. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I can't redeem it. Boaz is like, yes, it worked. Ruth comes with a deal, and I want Ruth. That's what Boaz is saying. I want that woman as my wife. I love her. I love her with all that I have. But I want to do this right. And the right way would have been to benefit both Naomi and Ruth and himself. So we see this negotiation that has taken place and boom. The negotiation is done. Now comes the legal transaction. Now comes the legality of this. And this is where these witnesses come in. in verse 7, he says, "Now the narrator says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite and the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Don't that make you feel special wives? I have bought to be my wife. It's a different time. To perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. We'll stop right there. You're witnesses. That's why I gathered the ten elders. That's why, I gather, that's why all the people are there. You're witnesses. So the legal transaction is pull off your sandal. Uh, this first redeemer, I mean, he didn't know this was coming. He might have had some nasty sandals on that day, you know. This seems like one of those things where if you knew you were going to be making a transaction, you'd put on your best shoes, you know, where they're clean and somebody's not going to make fun of you because, wow, these things really smell. 
seems like a strange way to make a transaction. I'm sure there's some cultural significance in there. I didn't look it up, okay? But it just seems odd. Nevertheless, it was binding. Something so simple as a vow, a promise with witnesses. He said this, he said this, we're all witnesses, all right? And Boaz could one day run out and say, look, I got the sandal, all right? This thing's nasty, but I got the sandal. This is it. So Boaz states the legal language of the transaction. He says more here than he said before, by the way, when he was negotiating. He says even more here. Let me just break it down. First of all, I've acquired the land of Elimelech. The first redeemer was good with the land, but not with the relationship. Boaz kind of like, I'll take the land. And I've acquired Ruth, the foreigner, to be my wife. That word bought, by the way, like I said, is there any real money going on here or is it the transaction? It's not about the money. It's about who has right to possess and to utilize the land. I mean, can you see somebody saying to Boaz, Hey, Boaz, I hear you're getting married. Yeah, sure am. Well, Boaz, why are you getting married? Man, I tell you what, I'm getting married to perpetuate the name of the dead. Ladies, huh? That's the reason. It wasn't, oh, she's so wonderful. His number one reason was to do the right thing. That's what that is. To do the right thing. I, I want Elimelech's name to stay in this line. I want it to be known as Elimelech's land and other people to know this. I want to perpetuate the name of the dead so his name will not be cut off. Can you all imagine that being the response? Many of you all have been learning about Martin Luther. Uh, Josh is going to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but uh, Martin Luther uh, wasn't married for a long time, and he didn't really want to be married. And uh, he finally ended up getting married, uh, to a woman by the name of Catherine. She was a former nun. And he listed the reasons why he was going to get married. His first reason was, my parents deserve to have grandchildren. Amen, grandparents, right? My parents deserve to have grandchildren. That was his number one. His number two was, I need to uphold the theology that I preach. Well, Catholicism held to a celibate priesthood. And part of the rebellion of the reformers is, hey, we're going to get married. We're not going to be celibate. He's kind of like, I guess I better go ahead and get married so that I'm practicing what I preach. These were the reasons. There was another one. I can't remember it. It was as good as the other two, though. Ladies, don't you feel the love? Come on. But when God created everything and he brought the man and the woman together, he told them, be fruitful, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Luther's first reason was right in line with that. It was. You say, boy, I bet they had a, just a 
marriage, you know. He, mar he married her because he wanted his parents to have grandchildren. I bet they just really didn't look. They were married the rest of their lives. And there's a bench still in existence that you can go to today that she had built. Because Luther was busy all the time doing all this stuff. All this ministry, all these catechisms for children, uh, running for his life, you know, all these different things. And Catherine had a bench built. And it's called Luther's Bench, I believe, to this day. And the purpose of that bench was when he was there, that's where they sat and talked. That's where they spent their time together. And they had a deep, true, beautiful genuine love for one another. Boaz, when are you getting married? Perpetuate the name of the Lord. Hmm. It doesn't shake out to a great romance novel, does it? Huh? I mean, you write this one up, okay, and put it out there. First, you've got to find a publisher. They're going to read that thing and go, nobody's going to want to read this. It's never going to get to the New York Times bestseller. It's never going to hit print. I submit to you that we have injected much worldly nonsense into many of our relationships. And that the biblical model shows wives and husbands more and more of what it means to love one another and not the flippant way of the world. The divorce rate is absolutely outrageous. Fatherlessness off the charts. I suggest to you that we've been doing something wrong as we come to think of marriage, as we come to think of relationships. I believe we've injected way too much of the world into the thinking of Christians and their lives together. Next thing, we got the legal transaction. You knew that one was going to be a little rocky because it's a legal transaction, all right? But then you have the community blessing. Listen to this. Boaz first says, your witnesses. I got the sandal. Y'all know what transpired here? In verse 11, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders, so it's not just the elders, it's all the people at the gate. Everybody there waiting on uh, the elders to make a decision for them. We are witnesses. And then here comes the blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who Together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I'm going to get into some of those relationships next sermon. But hear the blessing of the people. Yeah, we've heard the transaction. We've seen the transaction. And our prayer for you, and we want to ask the Lord to bless you. May the Lord make the woman Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Significance of that, Israel. Twelve sons of Rachel and Leah, twelve tribes of Israel. May this woman and her offspring and your offspring make them, make Israel strong. 
Folks, our having children is about making our community strong and making the gospel strong perpetually. The glory of God seen and known. That's the blessing that they're giving. Man, I, 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 we, we pray that the children that you have would be raised up in such a way to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength that it would raise the strength of Israel. Let's think like that about our families. Let's think like that about our communities. Let's picture a world, a community, a church where every family is committed to raising their children to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, not to look good on Instagram. That's the blessing that's coming at them. May Israel be built up. I just kind of gave y'all the application on that point, okay? I'm walking the application backwards from this point on. The application is, is that as families, as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, we're to bear children and raise them up in order to strengthen that family and the body of Christ. It's for the glory of God. I mean, God entrusted you with kids. Is that crazy or what? All right? This guy right here, 19 years old when he became a dad. I mean, I'm standing there after Gina has had this child, and I'm in there, you know, and that little boy is born and they hand him to me and I'm just kind of like I have a human that's different than having some socks you know that's different than having a car no they handed me a human what am I going to do with this answers that question. Parents, he tells us what to do with them. You raise them up to the glory of God. They're not for you. God says they're for me. We're witnesses of one another. We need to know that as the body of Christ. We're particularly of God's working in us. We rejoice with one another. We weep with one another. We challenge one another. We encourage one another. We're the body of Christ. We need each other. And we need to be witnesses of one another in our growth, in our living, in every way. Second application. We need to be people of our word. In every transaction of our life, in every promise that we make, in every commitment that we make, we need to be people of our word. Just like these two redeemers talking about this and making a vow and, and it being certain on the basis of a dirty sandal. We need to be people, men and women of our word. And we need to raise up men and women of their word. That they know the value and the necessity of honesty. Even if it hurts. Our vows to one another as husband and wife. 
as friends, as fellow members, should reflect the faithfulness, remember the word, has said of God. That's what Boaz is doing. He's doing it when he says, hey, Naomi, here's my pledge. I'm on my way to the gate. I mean, he's a man of his word. He's a man of promise. Lastly, just looking at Boaz. Hey, young man, I want to say something to you again. Live far above the low expectations of this world. This world has incredibly ridiculous low expectations for you, young men. They want you to be living in your parents' basement. We don't have any in East Texas. Spare room, garage. For the rest of your life. Making no commitments, having no marriage, having no nothing. That's it. The low expectations that this world has on men is ridiculous. I have been reading articles for the last 20 years talking about how men are in crisis. And they continue to be in crisis. Nothing expected of men anymore. Men are in crisis struggling with a loss of purpose, of relationship, and of usefulness. There's a lot of different things that people point to. Fatherlessness is one of those things. Boys represent 70% of all D's and F's given out at school and are twice as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. 70% of all D's and F's. Talking about underachievement. We got to do better than that. It's good to be smart. It's good to grow in knowledge. NYU marketing professor Scott Galloway said, the most unstable nations in the world have one thing in common. They have too many lonely, broke men. We go on and we think about this. This came from a recent break point, by the way. Andrew Yang says this. Here's the simple truth. I've heard from many men, we need to be needed. We imagine ourselves as builders, soldiers, workers, brothers, part of something bigger than ourselves. We deal with idleness terribly. Men, we're not built to be idle. We're not built to do this in a chair in front of a screen. We're built to work with our hands. We're built to sweat. We're built to go to war. We're built to stand for something. We're built to be useful in this world. We're built to guard the hearts and minds of our wives and our children. Boaz is a shining example of a man who says, you know what? The passion of my heart is to have this woman. To take her to be mine and fulfill my every desire with her. She would be my fulfillment. And he says, but I want to do what's right. He chooses to do what's right over fulfill his desires. Hey, ladies, that's the guy you're looking for. You're not looking for the handsome guy. 
like me. I mean, you're not looking. That's not what you're after. Gene, I tell you, you're not after that. You're after this guy. This guy that's genuine. This guy that will not let you down. This guy who's devoted to Jesus Christ as his Savior. This guy who above all things is going to do what is right. That's the guy you want to be married to. Young men, you want to have the respect that Boaz had at the gate. Don't put your hands to the plow of useless things. Don't work vanity in your life. Put your hands to useful work. Be men. Be courageous. Be a new generation of those who put on display the glory of God. Be that. Older men, Help them learn how to do it. Stop saying my time's up. I've done my time. I don't want to hear it. What a weak answer. There's young men that need you. There's young men that need your wisdom. They need your care. There's young men in your life that have grown up fatherless and they don't know how to be men and they need you to speak into their lives. You got breath in your lungs. Teach them how to be men. Okay? Teach them how to be men. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the overwhelming love you have shown us. And I thank you for the example of Boaz and the example, Lord, of Naomi and the example of Ruth, neither of which wanted to settle for less. And, Lord, for Boaz, who would not do anything but what is right. And Lord, through all of this, we see your sovereign hand and your overwhelming providence at work to bring about this work. Because it's through this work that you're going to do another work, and that is bring in the king, David, and in his line. So, Lord, help us to see that all the things that happen in our life, uh, Father, are definitely something that you use purposefully. And let us not grow discouraged, but let us be built up and encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.